Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Todd Haynes' new drama, Dark Waters. Inspired by true events, the film tells the story of an environmental defense attorney who uncovers a dark secret hidden by one of the world's largest corporations and risks his own career and family to bring justice to a community dangerously exposed for decades to deadly chemicals. In addition to Dark Waters, Mr. Haynes' credits include the feature films Wonderstruck, Velvet Goldmine, Far From Heaven, I'm Not There, and Carol, an episode of the television series Enlightened, and the entirety of the miniseries Mildred Pierce. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Haynes spoke with director Gus Van Sant about filming Dark Waters. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Well, uh, thanks for letting me ask you questions, because Todd and I um, go pretty far back, I think early 90s. Yeah. Um, and uh, both of us have lived for long periods of time in Portland, Oregon. And um, so um, great to be here. Thank you for doing this, Gus. So um, I have a list of questions now that I'm blanking on what they are. But I think um, one question is, the you know, this is such a hard-hitting political film that when I saw it, I felt... I can only think of the Teflon in my bloodstream. Um, and, and it's such a like, kind of strong critique and it's so political. But I also like, felt <clears throat> that um, you know, thinking about all of your other projects and all of your other films, that there's, you know, there are politics throughout you know, pretty much every subject of each origin of each film that you've made. And I, I guess I wanted to ask about, like, say, a, a sort of responsibility from yourself in making, you know, things that represent your politics as a director, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely am uh, driven, motivated uh, to address sort of... Uh, cultural themes and issues that I feel have some social meaning or value in my movies. Um, I guess I've never really dealt with a material that's as uh, sort of straightforward in some ways about describing something like this this story. And, uh, and yet I've been an admirer. I really love the, the whistleblower uh, genre and have, have always held some of those movies um, in a particular place in my fascination and as a director. Um, but I but I think there's something you know I think there's always this this um, uh, tension between movies that try to describe social ills and give you the answers. Uh, and I think I've always been in my in the films I made of the past hesitant to want to provide the solutions. I like showing the problems, I guess, more than the solutions. Fassbender 
who we were talking about over dinner, um, who we both admire. Uh, he once said, you know, revolution doesn't belong on the screen. You want to kind of show the audience the, the conditions that make it necessary or make social change necessary. And this movie, you see somebody actually taking action and taking on this tremendous, overwhelming fight against a corrupt power, uh, this one of the biggest chemical companies in the world. And yet, because it draws from real life, I think the thing I loved about the story and the and why it reminded me of those great uh, whistleblower films from the '70s, the Alan Pakula movies that Gordon Willis shot so beautifully and and Pakula directed so beautifully, or The Insider, or Silkwood, <clears throat> are films that I would look at a lot for this, is that they describe a very complicated path with setbacks, steps forward and steps back. And they don't have a sort of silver bullet to solve these issues. They really describe almost a primer for the way we all have to live our lives with awareness, but understanding that the powers that be are going to keep uh, coming back at us. And so you leave this movie feeling the kind of weight of all of that, the reality of that. And um, I, I love that about it. I thought that was really, really moving. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the, I mean, it's a very um, uh, direct representation of, I think, the, the steps that Rob went through in his life, um, and devoted so so much time to like to wage this battle, um, <clears throat> but something like that, um, I think, in, in a movie like Safe, you were doing a something that had as much kind of um, poison, I guess, with within it um, as as this movie, and I wondered, um, is that just a coincidence? <laughs> Safe, that safe came about way back when. I know it must have been. I mean, it had nothing to do because this was this came out of the blue. This was not of your own um, origin. I mean, safe was which looked at this theme of chemical sensitivity, but it was around this housewife that Julianne Moore played in the movie in 1995. This my second feature film. Um, but I was really focused on the sort of corrosive ways that the recovery industry was sort of stepping in to address the inexplicable sort of challenges of the HIV AIDS era, right? And which we were all affected by, surrounded by. And the ways that we try to make sense of and understand illness. It was a very much like my film Poison, my first feature, very much about illness and remedy and the way individuals sort of are, are almost elected to take responsibility for their own conditions um, in a way that I found undermining, you know, like that didn't put the focus on the society, it put the focus on the individual. And I thought that was, that was my sort of target. What's interesting about this is it's definitely putting the focus on systemic problems in the society. But what you also see is how much a toll that takes on the individual, how, how stigmatizing truth-telling can be, you know, 
like, uh, and, and all these movies that I was looking at and that this film sort of spoke to as well, they describe an alienation that sets in in these people's lives that is sort of seen, depicted in the visual language of the movies in different ways. Um, but it's almost as if the walls start to close in on these people as the stories that they're uncovering get bigger. Their lives get smaller and more sort of encroached by fear and threat and paranoia. Um, and so you, one would think, oh, the hero has righteousness on their side. They can actually go out and fight the good fight and feel fortified. But in fact, what you see is how compromising that is to these extraordinary people who have to come together and take on the, the systems of power. Um, uh, Christine Vachon, uh, a producer on this film, and Todd have worked, I think, your entire careers together. Um, am I wrong? lives together. <laughs> and you met at Brown. Yeah. Um, and uh, how, how do... Um, you're on the West Coast, she's on the East Coast. Um, you've tried to talk her into moving to Portland, but she refuses. <laughs> and uh, what happens when, um, say, she has, does she ever initiate the projects or is it? She doesn't initiate them, but we're involved sort of at every stage of the process. You so know. if you have something that you, like has struck you or you've been working on or thinking about um, or discovering, what, how does the interface work between the two of you? What happens first? If you, what happens when you first call Christine? We, she starts to think very strategically and practically about where and how a project could get financed. Um, how we use the stepping stone of a previous project or company that we worked with as a way of moving forward with the next one. Um, and, and then projects have come to me as well, just like you have written films, but also directed films from other people. And so you're, it's always this sort of process of, you know, calling a lot of different things that come your way and balancing out stuff that piques your interest and, and you might feel has an urgency. This project had a tremendous sense of urgency around it, starting with participant media and Mark, who developed it. By the time it came to me in 2017 initially in a first draft of the script, it had only appeared in the form of the New York Times expose by Nathaniel Rich a year before. So this is rare in the speed of how things usually come into being, whether one's, especially when you're developing it yourself, but particularly, but as well with studios, you know? And because of the mandate of participant that wants to make social justice-themed films their, their forte and what they really work on, and feeling an intense relevance about this topic, with the world we're in now, the issues, the environmental concerns we're looking at with global warming and, and entering into an election year, um, and how it all timed out with Rob's own sort of evolution in, in this ongoing fight, and the way he keeps, at, as the film describes, he's continuing to, 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 to pursue challenging the forever chemicals 
And the lawsuit he's now putting together has everybody who's been exposed to PFOA in the United States as the entire class that he's representing. So he's, uh, he's undefatigable, this guy, pretty remarkable. <clears throat> um, yeah, he, he was at a screening that I saw um, uh, almost a week ago. Is he still here? He, I think he's in, I think he's heading to New York. We have our, pre, our uh, premiere on Tuesday night. He was in, he went from LA to uh, Ohio, West Virginia, and he had a screening just a few days ago for everybody who's in the movie, who's depicted in the movie in Parkersburg. And I think he was anxious about it. He cares a great deal about these people. He wants them to feel that they're well represented and that they are going to feel happy and comfortable. They were many of the principal people or around us through the whole shoot. And so, but still to see yourself in the movie in the end is a whole different, whole different experience and to see a finished project product product. Um, but uh, I think it went well. I think he was really relieved. And I think there was a screening that followed that in Cincinnati um, that, that showed the people at, at the law firm uh, themselves for the first time depicted by, portrayed by Tim Robbins and, and so forth. <clears throat> um, you majored in semiotics in, at Brown, um, which I was always fascinated <laughs> Fascinated by that, and uh, wondered how that, the things that you were studying at Brown in that um, environment, how how that contributes to your films. Uh, the semi, it was the semiotics program, uh, as it was called in the mid '80s when I went there, in the early '80s and into the mid '80s when I was there. It is now called the Modern Culture and Media Department, that has a fully fledged production w entity. But critical theory. This was a program within the English department, but that sort of used the lens of critical theory uh, as a sort of precursor to how one would approach production of films in, in the school. I, I, wanted, I was just curious about where and how you made movies at Brown, what kind of production uh, department they had. It was very little, as it turned out, in terms of facilities. <clears throat> but it had this pretty remarkable sort of cutting-edge critical theory perspective that made one question sort of the language of movie making and representation in general. And it was sort of a, f semiotics was one term that was adopted, the study of, of, of signs and symbols, um, which come, owes somewhat to the sort of um, linguistic side of critical theory, post-structural theory that had come out at the time. But it was really, I guess it would, you could say it was sort of Freud meets Marx meets feminism uh, meets auteurist theory about cinema and sort of put it all together in this uh, pretty heady package. We all wore black and thought we were terribly cutting edge. But no, it had amazing teachers and... Um, and I, I felt like it, it worked for you. The theory made sense to you. If it, you could apply it to your real experience in life. 
and the way you were already questioning uh, truth and meaning, right? Representation, uh, sexual orientation, representations of women and queerness and race and, you know. And that was, that, that said something to me at that age of my life. So it sort of extended from my own experience. Were there, I mean, <clears throat> the things that you were, were sort of dealing with in semiotics, did they, they carry on into like films that you've made? Yeah, I or, mean, or, all of them, all in of a them. way. I mean, my films almost become the, the perfect syllabus for the teachers who are still there. But like Karen, my first sort of film that kind of established superstar. my superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, was a film I made in 1987. It was the first project I made after I left college and moved to New York. And it was really an application of sort of narrative theories about identification. It was like, let's, my idea was let's tell a story using dolls, using what were Barbie dolls to tell a story, but let's do it very sensitively and subtly and emotionally. And let's see if by following just the formal language of narrative, but you just replaced human beings with plastic Mattel icons, the same emotional connection could be generated by an audience. It was almost like a test, almost like a, you know, a uh, trying out these, these sort of formal ideas. As it turns out, the topic that I sort of stumbled back, backed into, because Karen Carpenter had only passed away a few years prior to that, and I hadn't really thought about her. And then I was listening to, I was at a cafe in New York City, and I started to hear a light FM station there playing the Carpenters. And all of a sudden, hearing those lyrics and that voice, knowing how she had died of anorexia and su suffered from it, I thought, wow, that's the story to tell with dolls and with the iconography of Barbies. And because in a weird way, that's what those, those songs did. They, you sort of approach those songs with a sort of sense of like, oh, I can't possibly get emotionally involved in this. I'm, I'm superior to this material. I can see right through it, so manipulative or whatever. And then you find yourself being moved by it because of many, for many reasons, formal conventions, but also something in that voice and that person who cut through it. And so we use this sort of little narrative model to describe this sort of also sort of plastic pop story and found an emotional result on both sides, I think. Um, now, it was your high school teacher that um, said this great thing. Um, that reality can't be a criterion for judging the success or failure of a film. Right. It's paraphrasing his, what this he actually was, said. This was a, a woman named Chris Adams who taught at the Oakwood School that I was very privileged to go to my last few years in LA growing up here. Um, and she taught fiction and she combined thick, you know, English and she put she taught in the English department, but she, she included film and often experimental film in her classes. It was pretty, pretty 
amazing for a high schooler to be exposed to what she presented. And yeah, and she talked about right question the idea of reality being a criteria for whether film was good or bad, that it was something beyond a depiction of just reality or you know, real life. And as a high school kid growing up in LA in those years, that was somewhat of a revelatory moment. I started to think differently about what was happening on the screen and where it was taking you beyond something that you could use as re reality as a criteria for judging. That it, it actually went deeper and sometimes more surface than that. It played on all these dimensions at the same time. And sometimes the most simple and obvious and maybe artificial thing is the thing that actually was the most truthful. And it was never, it was always a, a combination of those elements that, that excited me about movies. But yeah, I owed a lot to Chris Adam. Great. Um, <clears throat> I guess we could take questions. Yes. Uh, the question is about whether, how, how our, did we feel worried about the powers that be taking on DuPont and making a film like this for our safety, for the freedom to tell this story? Um, you know, we happened onto this fairly late in the game recently and quickly, unlike Rob Ballot, who spent all those years taking on DuPont. And the things you see in the movie, some of which sort of signify or tip the hat to thriller motifs, like the scene in the parking garage, were, came directly from his actual experience and how he felt. He said, um, you know, he went to Wilmington, Delaware, too, deposed the CEO of DuPont, and he called his mom up in Dayton, Ohio, and she said, does anybody know you're there, Rob? And he said, actually, no. And after the deposition, which lasted eight hours, he did, he walked back to his car and he put the key in the ignition and he, he was, he had exactly that panic for his life. And, and, and when the Nathaniel Rich article came out in 2000, uh, 16, and we met Rob, and he drove us to, me and Mario Correa, the second screenwriter on the script, we drove with Rob initially from Cincinnati to uh, Parkersburg, and he told us, he said, when that article came out, I knew at least they couldn't kill me, because it had been exposed. So, you know, it's, I, I don't really worry about my own well safety as, as much as somebody like Rob, you know. We all got stricken with a pretty bad respiratory infection while we were shooting the movie, and I think we all got a little paranoid and thought, this is DuPont, they're capable of anything. But, um, but we're okay. And, uh, you know, look, the thing that Wilbur Tennant, the farmer, wanted most of all was that the truth should come out. He didn't want to settle for money. He wanted the truth to come out, right? And he passed away before he saw that happen. But that did end up happening. And, and, they, and they did settle. Actually, Rob Balot got both. He got this story to get exposed ultimately to the world 
It changed the, the brand of Teflon. It took down the name of DuPont's name will never be the same. You know, they splintered into a company called Chemours for their manufacturing. They, they uh, joined Dow Chemical. So the DuPont as we know it doesn't, even ha it doesn't even exist anymore as a result of this. So, and they settled, and they had to pay uh, almost $90 million in legal fees and in the cleanups of all of the water systems that are, were part of the class. And Rob convinced the class to apply that money to the science study and the science panel that spent seven years analyzing the blood of 70,000 class members. DuPont never thought any of that could possibly happen and that it could be that comprehensive and that, that many people would volunteer to give their blood and to actually prove a link between PFOA and these illnesses. So, yeah, the truth did ultimately come out. <clears throat> I'm sorry? I, I haven't even been home because I've been I working did. on this. Did you? But you yes. did. But you right. did before, just this weekend. This. Yeah. You did after this. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Because wow. they're old pots. You know, they probably are Teflon. So, and they're all scraped up, and I'm using them. Which yeah, is that's not supposed to be good. <laughs> yes. Uh, from from all of the studies that have tested the water systems around the globe, not just in this country. Uh, yes, there is 98% of all living creatures have this in their blood, have this in our, we all have this in our blood. You know, and that happened in an incredibly rapid pace from when they started dumping this toxic sludge into the Ohio River systems in the Midwest of the United States, that it would travel throughout the entirety of our country and then the globe. Um, you know, so this is a... Uh, we have to continue to fight against and not keep contributing to the fact that these chemicals keep accruing within the system and are not, they do not biodegrade within the body. They are bioperistent, so they keep accumulating and they outlive the organism. So, you know, we, just because it, we're infected doesn't mean the fight is over. It just shows how grave and expansive the abuse of power and the willful knowing in continual practice of polluting this country, simply because the laws allowed them to do so without having to elect their own culpability and reveal their part in it. You know, we need to change our regulatory system in this country and develop teeth again in the way industry gets monitored uh, for the health of our kids and creatures, right? So anyway, it's, uh, it's a daunting scale. Of the, of the story, and yes, there's been pushback, pretty feeble so far against it, and it'll continue. The film happened very, very quickly. We, were, we had a new script written after the research I did once I came on board in May, June of 2018. Mario completed this new draft of the script in lightning speed, with lightning speed by, I'd say it was July that he had produced a version. It's a complicated story to tell with a lot of moving parts. So that was remarkable speed. We were in pre-production by the fall of that year, and we were shooting in January of this year. And we really just wrapped it and locked 
we just sort of complete. I just saw the first married picture and sound about 10 days ago. The, the, the screening Gus was that was the first screening. Well, Harmony Gold was the first one. That was it. But, uh, <laughs> but the screening Gus saw at the Pacific Design Center about four days later was the first time I saw it as, it, as I intended it to look and sound. So it's been fast. Yeah, we, <clears throat> we shot the whole film in Ohio State um, and found places in Ohio to play West Virginia. We did second unit photography in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Um, but we really, we literally shot the Taft Law Offices and the actual Taft Law Offices in downtown Cincinnati. And that part of it was so surprising and remarkable from an aesthetic standpoint. Like, you know, one might think it limits you to have the reality of the place in front of you and the people who you're telling the story about surrounding you. And it, you know, initially I was like, do I really want Rob Ballot to be on set every single day of this movie, right? And, and then he was just so lovely and so easy to be with and to ask questions about. And when I saw this, this these law offices in this sort of, you know, I'd say 80s, Building with sort of maybe late 80s interior design and separating with these, uh, the corridors of the place were these sort of 45 degree angles um, and these triangular rooms like our conference room uh, that Tim Robbins is in most of the scenes. It, it offered such, it had surprising visibility and then sudden uh, ominous shadows in the interior design of the place, the, the, just the way it was split up and the way the natural light would come through these windows, all of which were sort of different sizes, very few right angles. And, and, and Rob was the person who introduced me to the location when he first gave us a tour there, and then we figured it out and realized we could actually get approvals from the mall to shoot there. But it offered such, like I would have picked it, hands down from an aesthetic standpoint as my DP Ed Lockman and our production designer, Hannah Beachler, we were all like, this place is amazing. And the way, the views out onto Cincinnati, where you could literally, through the facades of certain architectural buildings, old and new, you could see the Ohio River from almost every vantage point through the windows as this constant reminder of what the ultimate you know, source of this contamination was how it was flowing and where it was going. It was great. It was a really amazing part of it to be in the real places. <clears throat> it was mostly real. It was, it was, yeah. We shot in the winter, if you didn't feel it. <clears throat> yes. You know, the water system, part of the, part of the settlement was to f put ad filtration systems to all of the districts that were uh, in, involved in the class case. The 70, it affected 70,000 people, uh, probably 100,000 people, because only 70,000 people participated in the actual study. Um, so certain, it's always surprising how the water flows downstream, and some contamination levels were way higher, just adjacent to the initial places of concern, right? And that's this, the problem with that's the problem with water systems as a source of contamination <clears throat> as, they, as they spread everywhere. 
and inconsistently over time. It depends when you're taking the tests and when you've cleaned up one area and where another area, maybe neighboring it, hasn't been cleaned up. So it's, it's everywhere and in very various and differing strengths. Um, and I forget what your other question was. I'm, oh, yes, he did go through the boxes. He did. I mean, he had a paralegal, Kathleen. But he, he, really, he really had no one else. And he kind of needed to do it himself. Later, he got discovery sent to him on disk digitally. He had, this is not particularly environmentally uh, advisable, but he had them all printed out because he needed to actually hold the paper in his hand. And that's also the best way that he could organize it, was literally, he didn't really use a computer. He used Post-its, he used a magic marker, and he used bot paper. And he stacked them and restacked them and reorganized them and sifted them down and kept narrowing down the narrative uh, <clears throat> and organizing it, and then drawing from it again and again and again. So, they were trying to literally remove the foam that had developed from the contamination of the river right outside Washington Works, the factory in Parkersburg. Washington Works, this plant that produces Teflon and, and many other chemicals, is 35 times the size of the Pentagon. It's of an awesome scale overwhelming in size. It runs along the Ohio River, <clears throat> just on the West Virginia side of the uh, state line. Um, and yeah, this was a story that we heard from Darlene Kiger, the woman that Mayor Winningham plays in the movie, that because her husband worked at Teflon in the 1970s. And there was a containment uh, company that was sent out to spray this stuff to dissipate the foam. So just to cover the just to cover the evidence, basically. <clears throat> so do you have to uh, get on a plane? In the I morning? do. I have to get on a plane very early. So maybe uh, maybe one more question. Yes. Um, I don't know. Do they want us to talk about the budget. Do we talk about budget? What do they? What do you say when they ask you about your budgets? <laughs> I just say yeah, uh, twenty I, million. Four million. Twenty. <laughs> How much? How much? It was I, a, I always say it was about twenty six million, the film. And what did what was the other question? Uh, it was like two and a half months of shooting, a little over a two two and a two two months and a and, and, a, and a little change. I'm sorry. Very little. We just didn't have the schedule for it and the actors' availability for it. Um, we, I, worked with, I worked with Bill Camp and Mark for a few days. I worked for, for one week, we were able to sort of stagger the schedules of the actors. And it's, it's, so, it's so great to have any time to spend with actors in advance of the shoot. It really is. It's so invaluable. And uh, so, so Anne Hathaway and Mark and I spent some hours together in my conference room off my hotel room. And this old Hilton, this classic uh, Hilton from the 30s that I stayed in, in Cincinnati. <clears throat> and it was, it was really important to have that time with those guys. And, um, 
and 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 Bill and and as soon as I heard Bill speaking as Wilbur, because we'd heard Wilbur's voice on the tapes. Those are all the actual tapes that you hear in the movie that Will that Bill recant revoiced over the the uh, original Wilbur narration. But it's so true to the spirit of this man and his incredible clarity, really, about what was going on from the very beginning and his insistence and really his faith that the truth would come out. It's not just something he asked Rob. He, even as he's, before Rob ever entered his life, he's documenting the cows and he's saying, people are going to find out about this. People are going to find out about this. So there was a basic sense in justice that he brought to that, to that story that would, couldn't have happened without him. And that's the thing about this movie is it required all of these sort of accidental participants to all take a role and a network of interdependency that Rob was the anchor to, obviously, without almost various pieces of which would, it would never have happened. It needed all of them to take place, you know? And that's uh, part of the miracle of the story. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, Todd. Thank you, Gus. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more great Q&As with directors Jay Roach and Casey Lemons. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 